This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. I'm happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Bill Glasser, who's the founder and CEO of Outstanding Foods. Bill, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be with you, Carl. All right, so let me point our listeners to your website. It's outstandingfoods.com. Just all one word, outstandingfoods.com. Bill, give us the elevator pitch for Outstanding Foods. So our mission, Carl, is to make plant-based foods easy for anyone to eat. There's been more of an interest in people eating less meat and trying to incorporate more plant-based foods into their diet. But for us, we don't preach, we don't judge people for their decisions. We want to give people products that just taste great so that you don't have to make a sacrifice to eat the kind of foods that you enjoy, but to eat more plant-based foods. And so we've launched our first product, which is a bacon chip made completely of plant ingredients, and it tastes just like crispy bacon. We uh, just rolled it out. We're, we're in stores throughout the U.S., and the feedback has been phenomenal. People can't believe it's not bacon, uh, and the, the, the response has been just really great. All right. Well, you were nice enough to send me some samples. So I'm looking at them right now. And let me tell our listeners, first of all, the, the brand is is uh, is pretty edgy and pretty in your face. It's called Pig Out. So Pig Out Pigless Bacon Chips is the big branding on the boxes, on the bags. These look like a conventional chip bag, I would say, medium-sized chip bag. And um, so I got to pick. There are four flavors here. I've got Chipotle cheddar original and kansas city barbecue all right well i'm all about cheese with my bacon so i'm going with cheddar and i'm going to rip open this package opens nice and easy ah nice aroma okay here we go here we go let's see if the how the crunch comes out on the radio yeah it's pretty bacony wow all right, so if I were describing the chip, and by the way, Bill, you're going to have to tell me what I'm actually eating here, but I'm not asking questions now about that. It tastes really good. So they look like little um, sort of, they're, they're, they look very much, I mean, it's a chip, basically. It's a chip. So it, it looks like a little wavy disc, a little smaller than a conventional potato chip, perhaps. It's got a a a a dark sort of a brownish color which evokes the bacon look and it crunches and tastes like like bacon. All right, so I guess I got a I got a bunch of questions. Let me start with actually let's start with what I'm eating. So what is what is it I'm eating, Bill? Well, you're eating a bacon chip. It just happens to be made from mushrooms. And so we use mushrooms which chef Dave Anderson who's my co-founder and who led product development at Beyond Meat, which just filed for their IPO, and uh, whose primary product, the Beyond Burger, Dave led the product development team on that product. And so he used mushrooms because mushrooms have a, a, an umami 
flavor profile, and that's part of building the flavor to match the taste of bacon made from pork. And so the mushrooms, what's unique about it is, is not only it helps create the flavor profile, but they're loaded with health benefits. These mushrooms mm-hmm. are often used in supplements. There was a study recently of having two servings of mushrooms per week help uh, your cognitive function, and they're loaded with antioxidants. They're antibacterial, antimicrobial. They have a statin called lovastatin that's been shown to reduce cholesterol. So you're getting all these healthy benefits, but the taste, as you mentioned, is very similar to real bacon, and that's why people are going to eat them. If they, if they gave you all those health benefits but they didn't taste good, that, that would be a hard thing for people to adopt. But because they taste like bacon, it's a win-win. You get the health benefits, but you get the great taste. All right. Well, I want to ask our listeners' permission. If you hear crunching in the background, I'm still I'm still noshing on these. Um, well, I would expect you. I would expect you to continue. Noshing. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a little bit of a problem because I got four bags here. Um, but but the, I, I guess let me let me drill down a little bit more on what's in it. So it's easy. Is, is this literally the stalk of a mushroom that's been sliced across the grain to create little discs? Is that what the actual substrate is, or is it a bacon? Is it a mushroom that's been ground up and reconstituted in a disc uh, form? It, it's the former. So okay. these are mushrooms that are sliced. They go through a very unique process. Uh, we have a patent pending, and part of that patent is the process to make these chips, which is very unique. And one of the components of that process is to reduce the fat content. And yeah. so if you just slice and fry a mushroom, they're very porous. They right. have, uh, they're very spongy. They soak up a lot of oil. So Chef Dave had to figure out a way to reduce that fat, and that's part of our intellectual property. And uh, But they are sliced. They go through the fat reduction process. They're fried and they're seasoned. And you are eating a, an actual chip made from mushrooms. The irony is I am someone that doesn't like mushrooms. Yeah. And uh, if you told me, try this because it's made from mushrooms, I would probably say no. But if you tell me, try this because it tastes like bacon, I'm going to say yes. And to me, I get the taste of bacon. It doesn't taste anything like mushrooms. It tastes just like bacon. But you get the health benefits of the mushrooms. Which, yeah. um, for people like me that don't like mushrooms, that's not even part of the equation. And but I uh, I'm guessing the bacon flavor doesn't come from the mushroom though. So how do you how do you create the the bacon flavor profile? So bacon the couple of the primary profiles of the bacon flavor are the salty, mm-hmm. the smokiness. Mm-hmm. And there's there's other profiles I mentioned umami partly which comes from the mushrooms, but of course we have salt on the product and uh, there's a there's a smoky flavor, and, and then Chef Dave, w- using a proprietary process, builds up some of the other flavors. Mm-hmm. But the smokiness and the and the the umami and the saltiness are are three of the primary flavor profiles of bacon, and and Chef Dave has uh, used those flavor profiles to really uh, transform mushrooms magically into the taste of bacon. Yeah, so the a, a conventional. Uh, let's see. So these are four, three and a half ounce uh, bags of chips, and a you know a conventional bag of chips. You're starting with a raw material that's almost free potatoes, and then you're removing most of the water. So probably most of the mass in a potato chip is is oil, or you know a good fraction of it is. Um, 
if you're reducing the fat, but you're starting with a relatively expensive raw ingredient, how do you get the cost of goods to to work out on this? Are are mushrooms? If you're buying enough mushrooms, are they are they cheap or is cost a challenge? Yeah, you know we. No one is producing a chip made from mushrooms on scale in the U.S. Right. And there's no, uh, other than really the raw mushrooms that you could find in markets, there's not really even a commercially um, scaled product using mushrooms. So in, in addition to creating a unique manufacturing process, we had to create our own supply chain. And we had to find growers of mushrooms that had the capacity to grow and meet the, the demand that we have and, and expect to continue to grow. And the cost of uh, creating your supply chain uh, starts out higher because, uh, of course, when you're buying uh, a product of, uh, that, that you're the primary demand for, it, the, the costs are, right. are generally higher. Uh, but that as, as we get more economies of scale and, and produce more product and grow more mushrooms, we're, we're going to progressively reduce the price of mushrooms. So initially... Uh, we're we're subsidizing the product to get it in the hands of people who who really love it, and and ultimately, it will be a money maker for us. Yeah, and is it the? Uh, I can I can guess which mushroom it is. I just can't remember what it's called. It's the it's got to be the one that's largely stock, right? I mean the the one that's a, sort of a big fat stock. It's not a champignon. I can't remember which one. You're right. It's a, it's a king oyster mushroom. King oyster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It that's primarily one. stock. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's a there's a a cap, but the cap is is really the minority of the of the size of the mushroom. Most of it is just uh, the stem. Yeah. And uh, they come in different sizes. To, to get it in a chip, you know, that's similar to a size of a potato chip. We're we're growing these mushrooms to uh, a much bigger size than than the ones you'd see in in the market for sale. Yeah, and you know, I. I actually don't know where your facility is. I, I've been told that the mushroom capital of the world is Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, which is just a, a half hour from us. Is that true? Or where where do you, where can you grow these mushrooms at yeah, scale? Yeah, you're correct. The mushroom growers in the U.S. are primarily based in Pennsylvania, yeah. and they are within a, a short distance of each other. And so the irony is that the mushrooms, these types of mushrooms are grown indoors, so they could be anywhere. Yeah. Uh, just like anything else, you you you, you have a hub, and and then you know people break away and they start their own companies, and they're usually uh, a stone's throw away from from the ones that they left. So, so it's yeah, just the ecosystem. It's not that the soil is unique or something like that. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, because these don't grow in soil. So, yeah, uh, but but in the U.S., the, these mushrooms are still considered a specialty product. Yep. In Asia and other parts of the world, they're um, much more commonly used in in their uh, in their dishes, and so the the price difference uh, is is vast. So you know, part of our challenge of of creating a supply chain and growing a, a product that isn't used in a in, on a wide scale for for similar products uh, is that cost, as as you brought up. And and so as we progress, we it's something that we would consider even vertically integrating and and ultimately having our own mushroom farm. Yeah. All right. Well, well, Bill. Now I'm going to just uh, uh, push you on a strategic question here. So, so I, so you've got this way of using mushrooms to make a snack food. I, I guess I, I'm a little puzzled about one of the strategic choices here. I would look at this and say, look, snack foods are already uh, meat free. I mean, the vast majority of something you would buy in a bag like this is already vegan. And um, why, why have you evoked? pig and bacon 
on this as opposed to just taking a, say, low-carb view on on snack food. And so maybe give us a little thought around this branding story. Sure. Sure. So we we view ourselves as a company that will ultimately be in uh, have products in every aisle of the market. Okay. And so we saw an opportunity. There are, there are some really great plant-based burgers and cheeses and ice creams. Uh, part of the the products that are on the market, my co-founder Chef Dave had actually created. And so we when we started our brand, we didn't want to incrementally compete by improving something that already existed. We wanted to really find a category that we can own, and for us, that was bacon. So mm-hmm. all of the plant-based bacon strips that are on the market, they're really preach-to-the-choir type products. They're, they're vegan products for people that eat primarily a vegan diet. If you're a bacon eater, those products don't really taste like bacon. They don't have a consistency like bacon. So we thought that that was an opportunity for us to start our brand with a product that was far and away above other similar products. The way the chips came about, Carl, was that from a strategic standpoint, we wanted to go where people were shopping. If we had to change people's habits and conditions where they most mainstream consumers walk by the plant-based meat aisle, most of them just keep walking. Right. They, they think that that's you know, where other people shop. And where Beyond Meat really became successful was when their burger started selling in the meat aisle where those consumers that were going to that meat aisle were more likely to pick it up, drop it in their cart, and, and, and actually buy it, and then, and then buy it again. And so we wanted to go where people shopped, and so that's how the idea of creating a product that had more of a universal appeal, everyone mm-hmm. eats chips, like you said, even most chips are, are by default plant-based, um, and then have that as a gateway to, for people to get connected to our brand, to know that our, our products taste great and have healthy benefits, and then ultimately come out with bacon strips that are plant-based and other products in, in other parts of the stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's been a remarkable just last few years, really, in this space. And you know, you mentioned you mentioned Beyond Meat, but you know, the, the a lot of hoopla last few weeks with Impossible Foods and and the Burger King partnership. Yeah. And Just, uh, who I know Chef Dave also worked for them, has some just amazing stuff as well. So it's we're really at this watershed moment in terms of uh, clean foods and alternatives to meat. Um, did you, I, I guess I'm curious about the origin story. If I were to look at your background, it's mostly a finance background. It, 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 I wouldn't have guessed that you were headed into the, into the clean food space. Yeah, so the watershed moment that you're speaking of is all about taste. So yeah. there's, been, there's been the desire for a variety of reasons, and, and, and you know, one of the driving forces right now is Silicon Valley is looking at disrupting animal agriculture from an environmental standpoint, and um, that, that's a big uh, source of capital for a lot of companies, and that's driving a lot of the innovation. But ultimately, it comes down to taste, because if, it, if, if products don't taste good, it doesn't matter what the intent is or what the desire is. It, it's, it's just going to be something that people don't continue to buy. They might buy the appeal of it, but not continue to buy it if it doesn't taste great. My background, you mentioned the finance part. I've also been a serial entrepreneur and I've had companies in different industries. My connection to the space that we're in is I've, I've personally eaten a plant-based diet for over 29 years. Oh, wow. And I have seen how this market has evolved. And and like you said, the last few years, it's been 
more dramatic in terms of the, the choices that are available and more dramatic in terms of the amount of people not necessarily, not necessarily becoming vegan or vegetarian, although that's been rising exponentially as well, but the amount of uh, the population that are just seeking out healthier plant-based products. And so for me, as someone who has seen uh, back 29 years ago, I didn't even know what vegan was. I didn't know what uh, I used to get these products made by Archer Daniel Mindlin that you would just take this powder and mix it with water, and it was it was trying to be ground beef, but it, it was pretty horrible at the time. Yeah, TVP, and, textured vegetable yes, protein. I exactly. remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there's been a, a not only an evolution to the quality and the taste of the products, but uh, an evolution to, you know, what the perception of eating a plant-based diet is. You know, the, the, the stereotype in the past were, were that people who ate a plant-based diet were skinny, emaciated hippies, and now people from all walks of life, professional athletes, business icons, people, you know, in, in just everyday life that are shattering those stereotypes and showing that you could be strong, healthy, and have all of your nutrients by eating plant-based foods. Uh, but the, the real explosion over the last few years has happened from the innovation of great-tasting products. All right. But then you specifically and this opportunity, how did this come about? So I met Chef Dave years ago at his restaurant. He had a restaurant in Los Angeles, and I, I was one of, the, one of his frequent customers. I was there sometimes every day during the week. And he and I uh, got to know each other, became friends, and uh, he then was recruited. As you mentioned, he, went, he was a co-founder of, of Hampton Creek, which became Just, and then went on to uh, lead product development at Beyond Meat for four years. Mm-hmm. When he was considering leaving Beyond Meat, I was the lucky one to get the call. And I had thought as an entrepreneur of, of, and, and someone that has been plant-based for as many years as I have of doing a plant-based business. But for me, I, I never wanted it to be a preach-to-the-choir type of company or product. And so for me to fulfill that promise, I needed a Chef Dave. And so when I, when I had that oppor- opportunity, when he called me and, and asked if I would consider partnering with him to start a company, I, I jumped at it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Bill Glasser, who's the founder and CEO of Outstanding Foods that makes the pig-out, pigless bacon chips. Um, Bill, so you had this opportunity. Maybe you went in and, and uh, you know, chewed, it, chewed the fat, as it were, uh, talked it over with, with Chef Dave. Um, what did you do to, to validate the opportunity? What were the steps in getting this business going? And, and maybe give us a sense of the timeline. I think you were founded technically in maybe 2016, but give us a sense of the timeline. Yeah, yeah correct. Yeah, there was, there was an evolution to him uh, making the jump and, and, and leaving uh, Beyond Meat, and there was the evolution for us figuring out our own product strategy and, and going through the process to identify the opportunity and, and the strategy of what our initial products were going to be. Uh, then we went through a process of R&D and making a product that's never been made before, not only transforming mushrooms into the taste of bacon, but the unique process that I mentioned required a lot of trial and error, a lot of uh, challenges that were foreseen and unforeseen and, and meeting those challenges as they arose and figuring out ways around, over, through, and uh, finding solutions to those challenges. 
And so, you know, as was the case in, for Dave at Beyond Meat, as is the case of Impossible and, and, and other innovative food companies, there's often an R&D process that, you know, can be in the couple of year range. And that's what it was for us. too. Yeah. But so, let's 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 start with that. Let me just drill down. Sorry to interrupt you, but drill down sure. on that on the development side. Um, I've. I think I've interviewed all those companies actually on the show, and I've been in the Just headquarters a few times in the Mission in San Francisco. And the strategy they seem to fall into is, um, at least Just is, they do the R&D in-house. They have a test kitchen and some pilot facilities, but then they go look for a, a partner who will produce at scale. Is that the way you did it? And if so, how did you go about finding such a partner? Yes, we, we have a co-packer, which is a manufacturer that makes our product, and we went through a very extensive search for finding a manufacturer that would not only make the type of snack foods that we're making, but be amenable to work with us on the innovation side and uh, either customizing equipment or modifying equipment or creating new equipment, and most co-packers have their methodology, they have their equipment, and they have their, their labor force that's trained to use that equipment, and they don't deviate from that. We were fortunate to find one that uh, believed in our opportunity and uh, worked with us to not only help solve some of the, the, the challenges that came up, but to help us modify and create the equipment needed to produce our product. Yeah, I mean, I'm not to get too far into the weeds, but but... I'm guessing, for instance, that even slicing those mushrooms, there isn't a standard slicer that will do that. And so is that the kind of modification that you had to do to get this to work? Well, slicers were we, – we're using something different than most of the co-packers that make chips use. Mm-hmm. And so we had to find a slicer that worked for these mushrooms. We do use a, a slicer that was an existing piece of equipment, but other other pieces of equipment required customization and um, – but even even to your point, the slicer, we had to try uh, many different types before we found the one that worked the best for us. Yeah. So what advice would you give our listeners on, as I, I see this situation all the time, you're, you're two guys with a PowerPoint, basically. Um, how do you convince somebody to, to, to be willing to partner with you as a co-packer? Well, I think whether it's a co-packer, whether it's an investor, whether it's hiring a team, it, it all stems from, from your own belief and your own passion about what you're doing. And if, and, if, and if you have doubts about what you're doing, the people you're trying to attract are also going to have doubts. But on the flip side, if you have conviction and belief and that you're undeterred by any of the challenges that, that arise and that those are, you understand those to be part of a process, not obstacles, and you're determined to meet those challenges... I think that then um, spreads, and people people you know are want to be part of something that they think can be innovative, and want to be part of something that they think could be big and, and game changing. And so you know it all stems from your own belief of what you're doing, and your own conviction and and, and perseverance and attitude that you're that anything that comes in your path, you're gonna you're gonna be able to adapt to and figure out and uh, overcome. And you know there's always no matter what type of spreadsheet or business plan or uh, a strategic plan that you have, things are always going to be different in the real world. And those things, you, you just have to be undeterred 
when the things don't go according to plan and expect the unexpected and uh, do whatever it takes to meet those challenges and you'll attract the kind of co-packer team investors or other partners that you need uh, starting with that conviction from yourself. Yeah. I mean, you you probably talked to a lot of co-packers. Did you find that those who are, who are owners, uh, small business owners, tend to be the most receptive or do the more corporate players tend to be more receptive? We found a mix of that, but ultimately we, we ended up with a family-owned co-packer that uh, they found more interest in the innovation and new products than they did with just the cookie cutter yeah. type of operation that they have on on other other lines. So, um, you know, the 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 ones that usually are entrepreneurial themselves are are going to be attracted to someone else's entrepreneurial right. journey. Right. That's my experience, and so I I just wondered if that were yours. So that's that's uh, reinforcing. Um, okay, now let's turn to the other side, to the demand side. The the salty snack aisle is a is a graveyard of of and a very difficult place uh, to get a toehold in. So, give us a sense of of how you've done that and how you've gone about it. Yeah, well, it, it starts with the product. You have to have a great product, and and that we we believe we do, and we've gotten that feedback. So we have a, a great tasting product, but we were very intentional with our branding. You, you let off. Our conversation was talking about the edginess of our brand, the pig, the packaging. And so all of that, we were very intentional to have uh, a personality of our brand, to not be lost on the shelves with the same type of look and feel and colors that, that other brands had. We wanted to stand out, and we, we are an outstanding brand, and we wanted to stand out not only in, in product with our taste, but stand out when someone's scanning the aisle we wanted our bags to jump out at them. And so, you know, that was an intentional thing. We have a very millennial look and feel, and, and the voice of our brand is, is very millennial and, and edgy and humorous and playful. Uh, and that was a big part of us, you know, really uh, differentiating ourselves. And then the other part is outside of the product and the brand and the, and the look and the feel, we, we were very strategic with who we raised money from initially. And so we're in an era of influencer marketing, and influencers have the power to sell a lot of product if you have the right aligned influencers and their, and, and their audience respects them and, and is the type of demographic that uh, is, is the match for your product. And for us, we went through a very strategic process to find celebrities and influencers that uh, had millennial-oriented uh uh, fan base and, and audiences, and w- our strategy was let's find people that can also have conviction for our brand, our product, and enough conviction where they're actually investing in our product and, and literally vested because they believe in it so much they're investing in it that they're not only going to be more authentic when they promote it, but um, more willing to promote it and more willing to promote it regularly. So we went through that strategy, and we attracted our lead investor, Rob Deerdeck who um, has been a professional skateboarder and has set all types of world records, but has been a TV host and, and a very astute business person and owns his own production, has uh, shows on MTV. Uh, his, his longest show is called Ridiculousness. And we have a whole array of other celebrity and influencer investors that are in the music space. We have Dirk Bentley and Jared Folliwell and Andy Hurley, and among others, and, and uh, several other people in entertainment like 
Daniela Monet and um, uh, Emily Deschanel and, and a variety of others. So with us, we, we were strategic about finding the types of influencers to invest with us that can help us tell our story and reach the, the potential customers through their audiences. Well, that's the L.A. way, Bill, and sounds really exciting. It's, it's awesome. Um, so we're out of time, but I this is this is really cool, and I really appreciate your taking the time to share the story. Well, I appreciate it. I, I can't see you right now, Carl, but I'm, I'm expecting that all four of those bags have been devoured while we've been speaking. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right. For more information, check out outstandingfoods.com. I'm Carl Ulrich. Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.